Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. We're going to look at uh, some powerful passages this morning in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. This great multitude that has been saved out of the tribulation. But let me, let me just take a step back for a moment this morning and let's look at a couple timelines because sometimes this information uh, is so much that it begins to be overwhelming. I don't know about you, but it gets overwhelming and I got to remind myself of where we're at in the midst of this. This particular timeline is leading up to the beginning of the tribulation and we know when the tribulation begins and that is specifically when the covenant is signed between the Antichrist and Israel. But there are several things that take place that we know of that have been prophesied leading up to that. We do not know exactly when the rapture will take place in terms of, and I believe it's pre-trib, meaning before the tribulation, but we don't have a sign to tell us exactly when the rapture's going to happen. We need to be ready for it because I believe the Lord could come back at any moment and take the church, the body of Christ, uh, to heaven with him. But there is the proclamation to rebuild the wall, beginning of the 62 weeks, and then the seven weeks. That's the 69 weeks of Daniel. There's one week missing. That 70th week is the tribulation, is the seven-year period of time. When we start at Revelation, in the book of Revelation, we started with the churches, the things that are, and this is the outline that was given to John concerning the book of Revelation. We are in the, the section of Revelation, it's the longest section, the things that will be. In other words, the things that are yet to come, the things that are yet to happen. And we're in chapter 7, these are things that are yet to happen. They are prophesied that they will take place, but they have not as of yet. After uh, the seven-year period of time in terms of the uh, tribulation or the great, great tribulation, if you would go to the next one, there are other things that are taking place. Clearly, you have the seven-year period, which is split up into two, three-and-a-half-year periods of time. Uh, I believe the math is correct, that that's seven years. In the middle of it is the middle of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, right? But then you have an interval where there's kind of, in effect, a cleanup period of time. Part of what takes place in the midst of that period of time is cleaning up the abomination of desolation in the temple. There's the thousand-year reign, which we call the millennium, where Jesus Christ will literally reign from Jerusalem. And he will reign over this earth. We will rule and reign together with him. There's the aftermath of this. There's the new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, new age. And it is something (laughs) that we can speculate a whole lot about. We don't know a whole lot about it. And again, this is at the end of Revelation that we'll find out quite a bit about this. uh, And we'll get there in about 10 years. So... In the midst of it, what I want to focus in on is uh, the signing of the covenant to Armageddon. And really, this is the uh, seven-year period of time split up into two, three-and-a-half-year periods of time. The signing of the covenant begins the tribulation. It kicks it off. A stopwatch is immediately clicked into place, and time begins to tick because it is a seven-year period decreed by the Lord for the restoration of Israel, for the putting down of rebellion and or sin. I do not believe this period of time is for the church. I believe the church will be raptured prior to this. 
There are seven seals. The seventh seal opens up, and then there are seven trumpets contained within that seventh seal. When the seventh trumpet opens up, then there are seven bowls, because the seven bowls are contained within the seventh trumpet. In other words, the seven seals literally are the full judgment of God during the seven-year period of time on earth. And when we begin to look at the seven seals, which we have looked at, we're about to get to the seventh seal, which is the opening of the seven trumpets. I believe this takes place in the first three and a half years. The seventh trumpet, I believe, takes place immediately in the midst of the middle of the tribulation. And once it is opened, then the seven bowls reflect what will take place in terms of God's wrath being poured out on this earth in the last three and a half years. Some would call that the great tribulation, getting it out of Matthew chapter 24. The point of the matter is God's wrath is being poured out. The seals depict his wrath, his judgment upon this earth. And again, it's for two reasons. It is for the restoration of Israel, which by the end of the seven-year period of time we will see, as well as... The putting down, the judging of sin and rebellion. In the midst of all this, and I believe particularly in the first three and a half years, you have the two witnesses, one of which I believe is Elijah, maybe himself, and or like John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ in the spirit of Elijah, maybe this witness will be like John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah, or it could be Elijah himself and another witness proclaiming the gospel throughout the entire first three and a half years, as well as the 144,000, which we looked at last year, saved Jewish believers who go out into all the earth proclaiming the gospel to all the multitudes. And that brings us to chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, where we see a great multitude that has been saved out of, and I believe, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Does that help? <laughs> I hope that helps a little bit. If you're as confused as mud, we'll get you the, we'll get you the uh, diagrams and everything like that. Either that or go ask your K group leader and they'll help you with all the details of it. I promise. They will get it right, right? So in the midst of it, there are several things here that I think are essential to understand in terms of this great multitude. Who are these people? Who are these people? The elder asks the apostle John, who are they? And John's response was pretty indicative of a very politically correct response is, you know, <laughs> right? Because obviously he didn't. And so we need to find out who is this multitude? Are these, is this the church or are these people that have gone through or going through the tribulation and have been saved out of it and the time frame that comes into this and the timelines that are reflective of this? I think it's important when we begin to think through this to be reminded of God's grace. Why does God allow difficult, tragic Things to take place. Think about that. C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone. Pain is God's megaphone. Would any of us have ever come to know the Lord Jesus Christ unless the Lord had come to us first? That should be an emphatic no, folks. We would never, in and of our own self, go to the Lord first. God has to come to us first. He has to reveal himself to us. He has to let us know our state. 
which is lost, separated. Dead meaning separated from God. And when God comes to us, when the Holy Spirit begins to reveal to us our state that we are separated from him, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we have no hope, that there's nothing that we can do in and of our own energy and or strength to measure up to God's good and righteous standard. We can't do enough good works in order to outweigh the bad. We have a sin nature, and the only fix for it is Jesus Christ himself. When the Lord begins to come to us and let us know that not only does he exist, but that he has a path, he has a plan for us to be saved, the question is, how are we responding affirmatively to what God is saying to us about our eternal situation? And that's what the Bible calls belief. Are we persuaded that what God is saying is true? Are we willing to listen to what he has to say? And are we convinced? Are we persuaded? And we're absolutely willing to trust in what it is that God is revealing to us. And what's beautiful is the Lord makes it very clear that when you believe in him, what happens? He promises he will save you. What an awesome truth. Folks, in the midst of all this pain and suffering in the midst of all these seals that are being opened and all the devastation that's taking place. The Lord sends these 144,000 out. The Lord sends the two witnesses out in order to do what? To proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that you can have hope. You can have assurance. You can know the Lord. You can walk with him. You can have a personal relationship with him. You can be saved. You can be rescued. God allows difficult things sometimes to wake us up, to remind us how fragile life is, to remind us how fragile our state with him is and how desperate we are in need of him to be rescued. Clearly, in this passage, we're talking about eternal life. There are people all around us who do not know the Lord, who have no hope, who are clinging to anything and everything in order to just get through the day, literally, because they can't make sense of it all. They don't understand it. They don't have the mind of Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit within them teaching them the word of God. They're not in the word of God, which is life. And as a result, they have no hope. And so what do they do? They grab for material things. They try to fill this hole in their heart with all kinds of different things that literally measure up to nothing. How, as the people of God, are we being used by the Lord in order to minister, to serve, to live our lives out so that people can see the hope that we have, that people can recognize the transforming power of God in and through our lives, and we're able to offer them the truth of the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that salvation is in Christ, and it's available. That's huge in our day. There's three things that, as we look at this that I think come out and very clearly so. And even though this is not the church that we're looking at, I think it's very applicable to us as the body of Christ, the church. First of all, there's a saved multitude. Secondly, there's reverent worship. And lastly, there's a future blessing. There's something they're looking forward to. It's in the future, but it's assured that this will take place. 
All the saved will worship the Lamb. All the saved from the Old Testament, New Testament, on into the tribulation. All the saved will worship the Lamb and enjoy his blessings forever. Think about that. What a beautiful truth that is. Folks, this is just, this is just a snapshot when we talk about the worship of the Lamb. This is just a little glimpse of what heaven's going to be like when everybody is gathered together and praising the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth that one day we'll be in heaven together with the saints of all ages worshiping the Lamb because of His grace because of his goodness, and because of what he's done for us. First, we see this saved multitude, and in verse 9 of chapter 7 of Revelation, he says, after these things, I looked. And I want you to remember, after these things is a very specific statement. At the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, it says, after this. It doesn't say after these things. It says after this. And all he's doing is transitioning from the visions that John has been given concerning the first seals into a new vision. It has nothing to do with chronological time. This does. This attaches the 144,000 with the saved multitude. The the 144,000 have been sent out, and as a result, because of hearing the gospel proclaimed through the 144,000, these individuals have been saved. They come to know Christ after these things. After what things? After the sealing of the 144,000. He says, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The first part of this is that this is a great multitude which no one could count. It was innumerable. John is being given a vision of a multitude that is vast. They're clothed in white robes. They're waving palm branches in their hands, but they are from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, indicating that this is the result of a worldwide revival. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around uh, in different places in the world, but I'll tell you, one of the great privileges of my life has been going to different cultures and meeting different people groups and watching and listening to how they praise God. I'll never forget, as a 19-year-old being in Romania, being in a gymnasium with about 5,000 people packed in so tight we were up at the front, And they had a men's choir that came and began to sing. I had no clue what they were saying. (laughs) It was all in Romanian. But I could tell, and my heart and the spirit in me connected with what they were singing because there was such a joy, there was such a reverence for God, there was such a glorifying of God that made a mark on me. I've been to Eastern Europe, former Eastern Europe. I've been down to the South Pacific. I've been, wow, a lot of different places. And I'll never forget being in Indonesia. We were there for a conference with AMG. They had come and asked me to speak for them. They had brought in all their national workers. There was about 400 different national workers all through Indonesia, including Irian Jaya. 
Does that ring a bell? Erie and Jaya. If you grew up like I did, listening to all kinds of tapes and records, I know that dates me a little bit. Right? We didn't have CDs, we didn't have podcasts. But if you grew up listening to that stuff and you would hear stories about the cannibals in Erie and Jaya. You ever heard that? God, help us. Come on, people. You, ever, you serious? How many people have heard this, these stories? We need to get, get you all into some of this stuff. Yeah, I can remember as a little kid, man, I was on the, they had the music going. I mean, it was all, man, it was intense. They were escaping. They were praying to God. Anyway, the point is, in AMG, with AMG, I'm standing there, or sitting there, and a group had come up. And this group looked like they had had a hard life. Does that follow? They didn't have the fanciest of clothes. When they smiled, they were missing most of their teeth. They began to sing Amazing Grace. I want to tell you something. I watched those people, and it hit me. I don't know that I've ever seen the glow of Christ on people like this. I leaned over to the missionary who had invited me, who's gone on to be with the Lord now. And I said, brother, who, who are these people? And he leaned back over to me, and he said, Eric... He said, these are first-generation Christians out of Erie and Jaya. They came to know the Lord as their Lord and Savior. And he said, either they themselves were cannibals at one point, or he said, most certainly, their parents were. <sighs> Folks, every tribe, every nation, the blood of the Lamb was shed at the cross so that everybody has the opportunity to be saved. And when you begin to see these different groups and these people, and you begin to understand that the heartbeat of God is the salvation of mankind, right here in Albuquerque, we are in one of the most lost states in America. Do you understand? Do we understand that? Everywhere we go, we got paganism, we got all kinds of nonsense, we got spiritism, animism, we've got uh, false religion everywhere. We are the people of God. And it's not just because we declare it to be so, it's because the word of God declares it to be so, and Christ lives in us. We have the hope of salvation, the assurance of being made right with God because of what Christ did for us at the cross. And the question is, are we living that out? Do we understand the urgency of our day and our time? And are we willing to come before the Lord and say, Lord, whatever you choose to do in my life, that's great. I want to be a part of the journey. I want to be a part of what you're doing all around. Would you be willing to use me? That's the question, folks. Great multitude out of the tribulation, all the suffering, all the pain, and yet in the midst of it, what is God still doing? He's proclaiming the good news of how somebody can be saved. What an amazing God we serve. What a loving God. What a faithful God that we serve. Amen. When we talk about this time period, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Mark 13, 10, make it very clear that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
And I believe that's specifically referring to the tribulation. The gospel is going to be proclaimed to all the nations, to the whole world during the time of the tribulation. When we think about that, folks, I wonder how that impacts us in terms of where we are today. There are so many people groups all through this world that have never heard the gospel. I'm amazed how many people in our own country have never actually heard the gospel. They may have heard about Jesus Christ, they may have heard about church, whatever. But have they heard the gospel? And are we being faithful to proclaim the gospel? Are we going to people as the Lord leads, as God empowers? Or are people coming to us either way? And are we willing to say, let me share with you the hope that I have concerning the gospel? See, in the midst of this time period, this seven-year period, God is continuously working in order to proclaim the gospel. Every nation, every tribe, people are being saved. There's a worldwide revival it says that they are clothed in white, which indicates that these martyrs are also part of the fifth seal, martyrs, which are under the altar, which we saw in chapter 6. If you look at verse 9 in chapter 6, it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They were martyred for their faith. And in verse 11 of chapter 6, it says there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. So this great multitude in chapter 7 is some of those who were in chapter 6 under the altar, indicating that they had given their lives for Christ. They had maintained their testimonies and had been killed as a result of it. They had palm branches in their hands and they were crying out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The palm branches were simply indicating that salvation had come and they had been saved not only spiritually but also saved out of the tribulation. They had been rescued. They were now in heaven as we'll see in just a moment. And what were they saying? They were praising the Lamb, and they were saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne. They were ascribing to him what is rightfully due to him, which is that he is an authority over all things, that it is his salvation by which they had been saved. Not by some other means, not by some other spoke of the wheel to get to God, but rather through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And it was to his glory, to his honor, that they began to cry out with a loud voice in order to praise him. Well, in verse 11, you see this picture as a result of this multitude being there, this reverent worship, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful truth this is. We saw a lot of this taking place in chapters 4 and 5 prior to the tribulation actually beginning in chapter 6 with the opening of the first seal. We saw this worship taking place by the four living creatures as well as the 24 elders. And here John is given this picture 
of worship that is taking place as all of heaven begins to fall on their faces before the throne, worshiping the Lord. And understand that in the English it says, amen, comma. It's not right. It's amen, period. And at the end of the sevenfold declaration of praise to God, there is another amen. Amen means so be it. God is just, God is righteous, God is good. And in the midst of this sevenfold declaration of the goodness and the greatness of God, we have this glory given, the true identity given to who God really is. Before each of these words, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might, the word the is actually found. The blessing, the glory, the wisdom. What they're praising God with is simply saying that to him and him alone deserves all the glory, all the honor, all the praise because he alone is able to save through what he's done at the cross. This is a picture of this great multitude along with the 24 elders as well as the four living creatures giving worship reverently to God Almighty. The word blessing means to speak well of, to praise. The blessing. Only he is worthy of the blessing. Only he is worthy of the praise with regard to salvation or glory, the glory. He alone is worthy of glory. His true identity is revealed in his desire to save and sending his son to the cross to die so that others, by believing in him, might be saved. What a beautiful truth that is. The wisdom. James puts it this way, he alone is wise. Romans, Paul, puts it this way. God alone, the wise one. There is no wisdom apart from God. He is the wise one. Or thanksgiving, which means to give thanks. It means to be grateful towards God for what he has done. Honor means to respect or to esteem him for what he's accomplished. Power is the word which means that he has the ability to do what he said he will do. And the idea of the might is that he is inherently strong. He doesn't have to do anything. He is strength itself. The sevenfold declaration of the awesomeness of who God really is. How are we walking in that today? How does that impact us today? How are we praising him and giving him the praise that is due to him and him alone? Or how are we giving glory to him where we're living our lives in such a way that Christ is being revealed through us and his love and all that he is is being revealed in such a way that people begin to realize that God is a God who is able to save and he's able to transform our lives. How are we living today recognizing that God is the wise one? There is no wisdom apart from God. What is it that we're trying to figure out and fix when we're talking about spiritual things and the truth of the matter is, is the wise one alone knows what to do and how to do it. Or thanksgiving where we're being grateful to God for what he's accomplished. Or honor where we're respecting him, we're esteeming him. Folks, what you are when you're by yourself is what you are. 
And men, listen to me for a second. This pornography is sweeping through this nation in a devastating way. If I were to go simply by statistics, the vast majority of men in here are locked into pornography in a way that only Jesus Christ himself can rescue us from. And folks, we need to recognize, are we giving him the honor that he is due? Are we respecting him? Do we understand that we've been purchased with a price, with the precious blood of Christ? And it is not our lives that we're living. It's our life for him that we're living. That's the question. How are we living in the midst of our time to where God's glory is being revealed through us, where the respect for God is so high that even if I'm by myself, I know God is with me and I dare not participate in something that would grieve the Holy Spirit, quench the Holy Spirit, bring shame to the Father. How am I living my life by God's grace and yielding myself to him in such a way that I would recognize, Lord, apart from you, I would always go that way, but you live in me. Thank you for your grace and your strength in order for me to say yes to you. And by saying yes to you, I'm saying no to the flesh. Ladies, I won't go into all the things y'all are going through, but you know you're going through stuff too. And folks, the sad reality of it is the church has become so much like the world. The question is, does the world even see the difference? It's only by God's grace, folks. It's only by God's grace. We don't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to do all these things for God. You go for it. You put that list together. And you show God how good you're going to be for him. And I'm going to tell you something. What's going to happen is the Holy Spirit in you is going to begin to reveal sin in your life that is so profound. Just like Paul, he said, one day I'm going to wake up. He said, I, I'm, going to, I'm not going to covet. Law says don't covet. I'm not going to covet. What did he do? <laughs> coveted all day? <laughs> he probably coveted over stuff he didn't even know that he was going to covet over. Stuff that never before hit him. Why? Because our flesh responds to that good and righteous law. It's by God's grace that we begin to walk in the newness of his life to where we begin to fulfill those things which are right and good and righteous. How are we depending upon the Lord? How are we walking with the Lord? How are we willing to yield to the Lord? What we are by ourselves, folks, is what we are. And don't ever think for one moment that the Lord Jesus Christ is not there. We're his children. He loves us too much to let us get away with stuff. Let's yield to Christ and watch what God can do in our lives. Power and might. He alone has the ability. He alone has the strength. Have we not learned that yet? Are we walking around like the Galatian believers without this knowledge? Or do we think that somehow we're perfected by the doing of the law rather than by saying yes and enjoying the power of the Spirit of God in and through us? Folks, we're living in a day where things are upside down and we need to make sure that we get things righted because it's Christ who we serve and he alone is worthy of the blessing, the glory, the wisdom, the thanksgiving, the honor, the power, and the might. Amen. That's the issue. How are we willing to say, here's my life, Lord. Use it in whatever way you choose because you're worth it. You're worth it.
Well, in verse 13, he gets into the future blessing. One of the elders answered, saying to John, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? In other words, the elder comes to John and asks him this question. Now, I don't think he's an idiot. I think he had the sense that John probably didn't know. And John was probably watching this vision. And in effect, John was wondering, what's going on? It's kind of the duh moment, you know? And that look on your face when you've got to have somebody help close your mouth. He was in awe of what he was seeing. And the elder recognizes, sent by God, in order to share with him who these people are. John's response to him says, my Lord, you know. And that word Lord simply means sir. He's not worshiping him. He's simply saying with respect, you know. So the elder says to him, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Now that word come out actually is in the present. It has the idea are coming out, are coming out. In other words, I don't know that this had stopped yet. These people had gathered. They were there because they had been, uh, they had been martyred for the faith. You can go back to the fifth seal in order to see that. But they are coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. Now, understand the language that's being used here. It is that which has already taken place or that which is taking place right now. It's either something that has happened, and as a result, there are consequences, which in this case are good, or it is something that is taking place in the immediate sense. They serve him day and night. Where? In his temple. He's not talking about a time in the millennium. He's talking about heaven. And he's talking about the fact that they're coming out of this tribulation, this great tribulation, this wrath that is being poured out on earth. And they're being saved, and they've given their lives for the testimony of Christ. And in the midst of it, now here they are in heaven. They've been clothed in white, indicating their righteous works that they have served the Lord with. They're praising God. They're holding the palm branches. They're giving him the glory that he alone is due. And in the midst of it, the elders telling John, here's who these people are. Now understand something. If this were the church, I believe the apostle would have known it. If the 24 elders truly are representative of the church, then I believe these people would have been linked in some way with the 24 elders. But I believe what we have here is a picture of a group of people, not the church, but a group of people that have been saved by faith in Christ Jesus, by the grace of God, and are now in front of the Lamb in the throne room of heaven. And in verse 15, in the middle of the verse, the language transitions into something future. He says, he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. He will give them covering. He will give them shelter. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. See, they've been rescued out of the tribulation. They've paid the price for their testimony of the Lamb, and they've been killed. They've been martyred. But now they're in the throne room of God. They're worshiping and they're serving the Lamb in the very temple in heaven. But then it trans translates or it transfers to the idea 
of what's going to happen. That there's a future blessing that they will have. And that future blessing is during the millennium and their protection by the Lord with regard to who they are and what God is able to do for them. What a beautiful truth. What a beautiful hope. What a beautiful future these people have who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about the church, we too are a great multitude that have the opportunity to praise the Lamb for who he really is because he went to the cross. When we believe in him, we have the opportunity to know for sure that God keeps his promises, which is that we will be saved. And in the midst of that, we get to enjoy his life right now because he's come to live within us. But we also have a future hope. We have an absolute certainty with regard to what God has called us to, and we know that in heaven, we're going to be with the lamb, that we're going to serve the lamb, that we're going to experience God's goodness. We're going to have glorified bodies. Sin won't be a part of this any longer. Praise the Lord. Amen. When we talk about this multitude, it's such a beautiful truth. They've endured much for their faith in Christ, and the Lord promises to take care of them. And rather than suffering, they will now enjoy his presence, his peace, his protection, and his provision. Folks, you know what? The truth is, when we come to know Christ, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? We have the absolute certainty that we, too, can enjoy his presence, his peace, his protection, and his provision. The question is, are we walking with him? Are we saying yes to him? Are we walking with the Lord in the midst of our day? Are we giving him the worship that is worthy of the Lord and the Lord alone? When we're by ourselves, do we esteem him? Do we revere him? Do we understand how holy he is? And that is a guide to us through the power of the Holy Spirit within us to keep us from things that we're constantly tempted and pulled towards that have nothing to do with God, but rather would quench the spirit of God, grieve the spirit of God, or bring dishonor to the Father's name. How are we walking with the Lord to where our lives are being transformed, and people can say, God truly saves. God is able to transform. What a beautiful truth. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. 